good evening or good morning to everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have so many um, here to listen to Barry Eichengreen and um, Ricardo Rice. And uh, this is a webinar organized by um, the Institute of Global Affairs at the LSE, at the LSE School of Public Policy. Uh, we are very honored to have uh, Barry. I know that he has given uh, already one webinar this morning because I, I was on it myself. So, so um, we have, a, uh, he's only warmed up um, with, um, and, and he's going to talk on the three horsemen, pandemic, war and depression in the 20th century. So I don't think for this audience, I need to introduce Barry very extensively, but Barry, of course, is an economic historian, but if you think that economic historians don't get involved in in uh, today's issue, Barry is very different from that, and and he someone who very much uh, takes his history seriously, but looks at uh, what implications are for today, and I think that's very much what he's going to do today. Of course, Barry is, is a professor um, at the uh, University of Berkeley. He's written extensively on on uh, economic history, international economics, uh, one of the most prolific and productive uh, economies around. So we are greatly honored to have you here. And of course, we have our own Ricardo Rice, who is a um, professor here at the, uh, the London School of Economics and um, a very uh, dear and, and, and um, very active, productive colleague of mine here at LSE. So I don't want to use more time of, of um, of yours, Barry. So please uh, go ahead and and uh, so I ask people to mute uh, if you're not uh, speaking and and uh, please uh, if you can uh, then uh, we will after uh, the speech by Barry and and the comments by by Ricardo we will let people come in so you can then use both your uh, the raise your hand function or you can uh, tell us through. The chat function. So please, Barry, the floor is yours. Thank you, Eric. It's um, good to be with you this morning. I was supposed to talk at the um, LSE on March 25th, uh, so my appearance there has been somewhat delayed. I was going to say this is a second best substitute uh, for physically being there, but now I see how many old friends are, are on the call. Maybe this is better. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, I've been asked to offer some economic historians reflections on uh, what we're going through at the moment. I think the, um, my starting point is the observation that economic historians tend to be bombarded with questions about uh, uh, parallels uh, whenever we go through a, a, a crisis like this. So uh, I'm, I'm experiencing deja vu of um, what I went through in, in, in 2008. I think that phenomenon is easy enough to understand. Human beings, uh, uniquely among species, uh, instinctively reason by way of analogy, by drawing parallels. Uh, I'm told by... Uh, cognitive scientists that chimpanzees can be taught modes of cognition that resemble 
analogical reasoning, but only with uh, great difficulty. It's only uh, human beings, uh, children already at a young age that begin to reason analogically. And history, of course, is a rich source of analogies. When the global financial crisis struck, everybody immediately began asking, how does this crisis compare with the Great Depression? And I eventually wrote a book uh, that explored that comparison when uh, COVID-19 hit. The economic historians among us were immediately asked, how does this pandemic compare with the Spanish flu of 1918-1919? Or how does the rise in unemployment now compare with the rise of, of unemployment in after 1929? Or how does the mobilization of resources to fight the pandemic today compare with the mobilization of resources during World War II? I'm reminded that both Donald Trump and Boris Johnson have re referred to themselves as wartime leaders. Um, so you will have noticed the, uh, the pattern that these questions about historical analogies and precedents tend to be associated with, uh, with crises. Crises, of course, are when there's no time for systematic deductive reasoning, where deductive reasoning means deducing conclusions by uh, feeding assumptions and data into a model, which in turn presupposes the ability to, that you have the time to, uh, to build and solve the model. So it's precisely in crises when we lack that time that um, policymakers tend to resort to historical uh, analogies for decision-making rules of thumb. Foreign policy specialists have uh, emphasized and analyzed this point at length how President Harry Truman, when deciding to intervene in Korea, based his decision-making on the analogy with World War I, how John F. Kennedy, when deciding how to deal with the Cuban Missile Crisis, leaned on the Munich analogy, how George W. Bush, when deciding how to uh, respond to 9-11, was influenced by the, uh, the Pearl Harbor analogy. Four, to pick uh, uh, an example closer to home, there's the case of President Gerald Ford and his advisors uh, when deciding how to respond to an outbreak of swine flu in 1976. They based their reasoning, reasoning on the analogy with the 1918 Spanish influenza, which killed uh, more than 50 million people uh, globally. It turned out that uh, swine flu was less contagious and less deadly but anticipating a, a public health uh, emergency akin to uh, the Spanish flu, the Ford administration rushed through a vaccine that turned out to have dangerous side effects. So some uh, 500 Americans uh, experienced serious complications from that vaccine. 25 died as a result, and not a single person who, except those who came into direct contact with pigs, actually died from uh, the, the swine flu. So that's a, a cautionary tale. More generally, I think the conclusion reached by uh, many scholars of foreign policy is that policymakers often utilize analogies poorly. They fail to check them for fitness to the circumstances at hand. Uh, they're over-influenced by searing analogies analogies that are seared into our collective uh, 
consciousness, but may not be representative of current events. They rarely consider a, 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 a portfolio of analogies and sift through them to figure out what fits. So here, actually, the Cuban Missile Crisis is a counterexample, probably because JFK had a PhD historian, Arthur Schlesinger, in his kitchen cabinet to advise him on what alternative analogies to uh, consider. So it's the, the role of the economic historian uh, to caution uh, uh, against superficial analogies and parallels, uh, to misquote Mark Twain, who allegedly, but didn't actually say, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Uh, every crisis is different in its uh, particulars. I would argue that historical analogies are useful mainly for pointing to what differentiates current circumstances from, uh, from their uh, predecessors. So with that lengthy preamble, I'm now going to offer some reflections on the historical episodes about which uh, everyone has been asking, the Spanish flu pandemic, the Great Depression, and the aftermath of World War II, and you can judge for yourself whether I adequately take uh, the preceding to heart. Everybody by now knows the broad details of the Spanish flu pandemic, the most severe pandemic of modern times. Uh, some 500 million people, uh, a third of the world's population were infected. Some 50 million people died. So those are figures from the website of the U.S. Center, Centers for Disease Control. They imply a mortality rate of uh, 10%, which is a first-order difference from what we're seeing now, or at least so one hopes. Um, so far, deaths are on the order of 3 to 5% of confirmed cases, and we know that we're vastly undercounting uh, uh, cases. Mortality rates uh, may go up now as uh, the virus moves to low-income countries, moreover. Uh, uh, and and an, another interesting observation is that mortality rates in 1918, 1919 were highest among young people, exactly the opposite of today. In the U.S., the Spanish flu killed uh, 675,000 people, about 0.6 of 1% of the population. So the comparable figure for the U.S. today would be 2 million deaths from COVID-19. Currently, we're debating uh, whether the death toll in the U.S. will be 60,000 or 100,000 or 140,000. Those numbers are, are horrific by any standard, but they pale in comparison to what happened in 1918, 1919. The difference plausibly reflects many factors. There was no vaccine. There were no antibiotics. There were no ventilators. There were none of the miracle drugs touted by President Trump. There was less access to clean water. There were less urbanized populations than now. Uh, that last fact, I, I, I think, helps to explain uh, an, another one of the dramatic contrasts between then and now. Uh, the Spanish flu in the U.S. disproportionately infected and killed white Americans, whereas COVID-19 is disproportionately hitting blacks and Latinos. 
the explanation is that over 90% of the urban population in 1910 uh, was white. Now the opposite is true. A greater share of uh, the non-white population is urban compared to the white population. There was also um, relatively little social distancing. So this brings me to the first point I, 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 I want to highlight. Um, clearly, uh, uh, the 1918-1919 uh, pandemic was a major economic uh, uh, event. Studies which have been done about it show that it had a, a significant long-term impact in the United States and, uh, and other countries like Sweden where it's also been studied on real wages and per capita incomes. It negatively affected the lifetime economic outcomes of individuals who were in utero during the pandemic. But it barely registered, I exaggerate slightly, but only slightly, in the macroeconomic statistics. Um, uh, you, you can see that, uh, if I can make my slides go, see if I can. Yeah, you, you can see from this uh, now well-known figure comparing uh, mortality in, in uh, 1918 in Philadelphia and St. Louis that uh, the extent of lockdowns and social distancing varied uh, across cities. And that had, those policies had major impacts on, uh, on the curve on mortality rates. But you don't see those kind of impacts in uh, uh, macroeconomic statistics. So the Myron Romer Monthly uh, Industrial Production Index shows its regular seasonal fluctuations in 1918, not unlike 1917 or 1919-1920. Uh, or uh, the NBER seasonally adjusted series for industrial production trends smoothly upward, just like it did in uh, subsequent years. Freight car loadings show exactly the same seasonal pattern and almost exactly the same level as in 1919, 1920, and 1921. The NBER, which started dating business cycles uh, uh, around this time, did place a business cycle peak in August 1918, and a subsequent trough in March of 1919. Uh, the NBER and Burns and Mitchell, uh, on who they relied, looked at uh, at a hodgepodge of uh, of 40 series on production and business activity and and so forth. So far as I can tell, they based their recession call in uh, they they called a quote, short and mild 1918-1919 recession on the basis of coal production and the output of uh, the textile, stone, lumber, and leather industries, uh, steel, motor vehicles, machinery, petroleum, chemicals, and importantly, agriculture, the leading sectors of the day seem to have been largely uh, unaffected. The other place you, you might look for evidence about the macroeconomic effects in the United States is from the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, which uh, began publishing data on uh, employment monthly uh, 
again, almost exactly in this period. So I think we see here the impetus that events like this give to the uh, provision of real-time data. Uh, the BLS employment index trends downward modestly and smoothly over the course of 1918 by a cumulative three or four or five percent, depending on the precise months you compare. It then drops by 10% between January and February of 1919 before mounting a, a, a V-shaped recovery. Uh, that timing is not quite right for this fluctuation to be explained by uh, the pandemic. The first two waves were well before that. The third wave was well uh, well after. Uh, and, and, and it turns out uh, that this Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Series is for industry alone. No agricultural employment, no mining, no service sector uh, employment, and it's made up heavily of textiles, apparel, boots, and shoes, the same sectors that Burns and Mitchell's recession call weight so heavily. Uh, the other important thing that happened in February of 1919 when employment drops is a five-day general strike by 65,000 workers in Seattle protesting wartime wage controls, uh, a forgotten strike that federal troops were ultimately called out to, uh, to put down. Um, so I, I regard the behavior of output and employment in that earlier pandemic as something of a mystery that deserves further study. So I uh, had a conversation about this earlier in the week with one of the authors of, of the uh, Myron Romer uh, Industrial Production Index, and 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 Christie expressed uh, some of the same uh, um, uncertainty uh, that I feel. It's not all federal government spending. Uh, the war ended in early 1918, and federal government spending was already beginning to ramp down. It could be that uh, the, the fact I, I alluded to before, that the country was less urban, the economy was less urban, is part of the story. Uh, that we were less globalized than, than now may be part of the uh, story as well. But I regard this as an important mystery that would uh, reward further study. My second horseman, if you will, is uh, uh, the Great Depression. And I mentioned before how frequently these days uh, economic historians are asked how similar uh, is the 1930s uh, crisis to the economic situation today. I've been getting the question more frequently of late because on Tuesday in releasing the World Economic Outlook, the IMF uh, wrote that uh, the only close comparison with what we're going through now uh, is the Great Depression of the 1930s. So I think the IMF is, is, is right to flag the fact that unemployment in a number of countries is poised to uh, scale 1930s levels. The IMF is right to point to the fact that this is the first true global crisis since the crisis of the 1930s. Even the financial crisis of 2008-2009 had first-order effects only in certain parts of the world. 
uh, significant emerging markets skated through that event largely uh, unscathed. But there are, are important differences there uh, between that event and, and today as well. One difference is the speed with which the downtown, downturn unfolded. Um, what it took them the better part of four years to accomplish uh, a tw an unemployment rate that rose to 25% in the United States, uh, we seem poised to accomplish in more like uh, four weeks. Uh, the Great Depression was an event that started in the financial sector and went on to infect the real economy. Now we're uh, beginning to experience the opposite, uh, uh, a real side shock that will eventually uh, affect the financial sector. Uh, another very important contrast is this time central banks are on the case where they were missing in action in the early uh, 1930s. Barry, um, I think that there's a problem with your PowerPoint. I don't know if you, it seems to get stuck. And, are you? It, it is stuck there. I will, I'll be advancing it more quickly. <laughs> don't no, despair. No, I, I just, uh, people are wondering all over the world. <laughs> All right. Uh, tell, tell people all over the world to be um, patient. We'll get there in a moment. Uh, from too few slides, I'm about to give you too many. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the best book about the Great Depression, uh, of course, is Charles Kindleberger's uh, The World in Depression, 1929-1939. Kindleberger made two key points about the Depression. Um, first, financial distress was and uh, was aggravated and fiscal space was limited in a number of countries by weak commodity prices, which uh, fatally destabilized uh, the situation in, in a number of developing countries. Secondly, the depression was greatly aggravated by lack of US economic leadership. And I think both, both points obviously are, are timely. Uh, a, a final difference between the 1930s and, and, and now is the fiscal policy response. It was tentative at best in the 1930s. It's more aggressive uh, now, uh, although how effective, time will tell. We're now likely to see the, uh, the rapid growth of debt to GDP ratios in coming years with uh, implications for debt sustainability that I'll talk about in uh, a, a few minutes. Debt ratios also rose rapidly in the 1930s but for very different reasons. So I've, re I've been doing a, a little work with colleagues on, on the uh, development of public debts in the 1930s using the standard uh, decomposition that everybody working in this literature uh, uses where the change in the debt to GDP ratio shown on the left here is a function of uh, primary budget surpluses over time larger the surplus, the more debt is retired, the um, interest rate growth rate differential. If uh, growth rates exceed interest rates, that will uh, tend to work down the debt ratio over time. And this last term, the stock flow adjustment, which is a catch-all term for everything else that contributes to the change in the, in, in the debt ratio, not captured by the first two terms. So you can look at this uh, decomposition and the relative importance of the different factors uh, in the 
30s. And what you can see here is that uh, um, budget deficits contributed nothing, less than nothing actually, negative sign in the first column, to the rise of debt ratios in that decade. If anything, uh, small primary surpluses put downward pressure on those, uh, those ratios. A few countries ran uh, primary deficits. The United States, for example, with the expansion of public works, ran small primary uh, uh, deficits, uh, but those were offset by primary surpluses elsewhere. Uh, in the 1930s, debt ratios rose mainly due to the collapse of output, as uh, captured in this table by the interest rate growth rate differential. Maintaining a balanced budget in, in recessionary times, the lesson followed follows, is no virtue. Doing, nothing, doing so does nothing to stabilize output. It doesn't even stabilize uh, the debt ratio. Finally, part three, uh, let me say a few words about the other uh, analogy people are invoking so widely these days, uh, the aftermath of World War II. Um, World War II was immensely costly in, in, in human lives, of course, but also in, in, in terms of physical and financial uh, resources. As a share of GDP, its cost was about twice the cost of World War I, as you can see in, in, in the two peaks in the solid black line here, uh, the First World War and the uh, Second World War II was more expensive because of its global scope, because of the more costly military technologies that had been developed uh, in the interim. Um, and uh, governments financed about 50% uh, of their wartime expenditures in World War II by issuing debt, just as they had uh, during, um, during World War I. The other relevant point is that central banks contributed heavily to that process of debt finance by uh, purchasing government bonds. As you can see in, in this figure, the pattern is the same as in World War I, but the extent of those bond purchases was greater during World War II. Generally, meaning in the US, in the UK, and in certain other, other countries, central banks impose ceilings on both short-term and long-term, on the interest rates on both short-term and long-term treasury securities. Uh, they engaged in yield curve control, if you will. In the US, uh, starting in 1942, the Fed placed a ceiling of three-eighths of one percent on bills and a, a, a ceiling on interest rates on 10-year uh, government bonds of 2.5 percent. And they in, uh, the Fed enforced both of those ceilings for a decade uh, by purchasing bills and bonds, mainly bills in practice, big time. Uh, in other words, the Fed kept doing so not only for the duration of the war, but for six full years after the war, uh, in the case of bonds, until the famous Fed Treasury Accord uh, of, of March 1951. Um, as we've been reminded, not only by the Fed, but also by the Bank of England and uh, the ECB, there are essentially no limits on the ability of a central bank to expand its balance sheet. This balance sheet expansion shown in figure 6.2 is pretty uh, pretty impressive. The question is, at what cost, uh, and I think the relevant cost here, 
is that when the central bank attempts to control the interest rate, it gives up its ability to control the price level. In other words, at some point, you're apt to run into a problem of uh, inflation if the warranted or shadow interest rate is is uh, above the prevailing or pegged interest rate. That's part of the story of what happened after World War II. So this figure for the United States shows you the, the evolution of the price level in the relevant period. Inflation rose to 6.5% in 1948. Eight and a half percent in 1946, excuse me, eight and a half percent in 1947. There was obviously lots of pent up demand following wartime controls. So there was lots of spending given prevailing low interest rates and there was a good deal of inflation. What is less often recalled though is uh, then that when a central bank pegs the interest rate, it's equally unable to prevent deflation if demand falls short of supply, if the warranted interest rate is below the prevailing pegged rate. And you can see from this figure that deflation was roughly 10%. Let me pause and repeat. Deflation was roughly 10% between the fall of 1948 and the spring of uh, 1949. It was roughly 5% between uh, the fall of 1949 and the spring of 1950. Those are big numbers. Uh, they're not something that central banks would tolerate today. They're a reminder of the magnitude of, uh, of, of the de deflation that we might have experienced had central banks starting in 2008 and again more recently not only uh, pegged interest rates at low levels but in addition, importantly, launch QE to supplement that uh, interest rate policy. So what was going on in these deflationary periods? It was the 1949 recession. Uh, firms had gotten out, out ahead of consumer uh, spending. Uh, they uh, produced and invested too enthusiastically starting in 1946. They had too many inventories, so they cut back. Fiscal policy was tightened at this time. There were still problems in Europe making for weak U.S. exports. The Marshall Plan was only beginning. Uh, this recession was uh, sharp. It was also short because the Korean War and more fiscal spending uh, up, appeared on the scene. But the important point, the relevant point I'm trying to make is the, um, the Fed did nothing uh, uh, to pull the U.S. economy out of that recession it kept interest rates right where they were. So what was the Fed doing throughout the uh, pre-accord period between the end of the war and, uh, and, and 1951? Uh, it, it wasn't as if the Treasury was still running deficits. You can see here that the uh, federal government budget swung back into balance and depending on the year you look at, at into modest uh, surplus, almost uh, immediately uh, after the war. It's uh, true that maturing bills had to be rolled over, maturing bonds had to be rolled over, and had the Fed abandoned its uh, cap on interest rates, the cost of doing so would have, could have gone up. But that seems like a, a weak justification, uh, 75, looking back from a distance of 75 years, for uh, tolerating 
uh, double-digit inflation or double-digit deflation. I think the other factor at work here, this is something that uh, Peter Garber and I uh, discovered in a 1992 uh, article on the uh, Treasury Fed Accord, uh, was financial stability concerns. Uh, there, uh, there is much, uh, there, there was much attention to the Fed's holding uh, of Treasury securities. But in fact, the bulk of U.S. government bonds were not held by the Fed. Uh, or, or uh, significant numbers of them were also he uh, held by the banking system. And higher, inter higher interest rates would have put downward pressure on those bond prices. As Peter and I showed, uh, under the counterfactual that uh, uh, interest rates had been doubled re relative to their historical values, that would have wiped out the majority of bank capital at a stroke. Over time, Banks rebalanced their portfolios so they were less treasury bond heavy in 1952 than they had been in 1946. It would have been possible to double interest rates and only eliminate about a quarter of uh, bank capital. So it was possible for the treasury and the Fed to contemplate uh, uh, allowing interest rates to rise without destabilizing the banking and financial system in 1951-52, where that would have been reckless at the least um, five, six years uh, earlier. I think this history suggests that in thinking about how, how, our, how long uh, our central bank's current policies of pegging interest rates will continue, uh, it will be important to look to the bank's and to the financial stability consequences more generally of uh, abandoning those pegs. Um, finally, there is the worry that once the immediate crisis is over, uh, governments will resort to financial repression to work down very heavy uh, inherited debts. So there's lots of reference to this possibility uh, at the moment. Observers point regularly uh, to uh, the 1950s as an example uh, of the use of financial repression pol policies to keep interest rates down below growth rates as a, a way of working down inherited uh, debt burdens. I would agree that there is something to the point. Interest rates uh, on government debt were below growth rates for much of the 1950s and 1960s. Banks were still required to hold government bonds to meet their capital requirements in part. There were caps on other interest rates, the deposit rates offered by banks, for example, that subsidized the demand for government bonds. But in addition, I would point to the role of two other factors in the debt consolidation of the post-World War II period. One is rapid growth. Between 1945 and 1975, growth in the advanced countries ran at 5% per annum. Uh, these are impressively rapid uh, growth rates in mature economies by any historical standard. This was the so-called golden age of growth when countries were able to uh, lower the debt to GDP ratio by growing the denominator. In addition, and underappreciated, I would argue, is there was also a significant contribution to debt reduction from persistent primary surpluses. So I um, show you here the 
uh, the same kind of debt decomposition uh, after World War I and after World War II. It's the bottom row that is relevant for this discussion, where you can see it's not only the growth rate, interest rate differential that worked to reduce inherited debts, interest rates that were low relative to achieved growth rates, but the fact that governments were able to run persistent primary budget surpluses, not all of them every year, but many of them uh, in most years, for the better part of two decades. So except for select economies like Italy, which has been able to do this since really the late 1990s, uh, this is quite unusual behavior in our, uh, in our mature uh, democracies. Just how they were able to consolidate inherited debts, in part, uh, to the extent 40% of their achievement is attributable to persistent primary budget surpluses. Exactly how they, they were able to do that is something that I think economic historians should analyze. Looking back, myself, I'm uh, inclined toward the kind of political economy explanations that people like Pierre Yared offer. Uh, our political systems were less polarized, less fractionalized. Uh, um, there were fewer uh, uh, instances of rapid changes, serial changes in, 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 in government, uh, uh, the kind of political circumstances that are conducive to deficit spending then, then now, uh, which to my mind uh, uh, should render us a bit more pessimistic about whether the kind of fiscal consolidation that Robert Rubin is calling for once the pandemic is over, calling for in the New York Times today, is actually something that our uh, economies and, and, and political systems will be uh, capable of achieving. So uh, that's what I have to say. I conclude that history does provide a perspective, several pr perspectives, if you will, uh, for thinking about uh, our current problems, but that history should be handled with care. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Thank you for giving us a lot of food uh, for thought. And uh, of course, these parallels, as you said, are informative, but also, you know, imperfect. So it's, we will come back to that. So the um, next comments are from Ricardo Reis. Ricardo? Yes, thank you very much. Can you hear me well, Eric? Yep. Perfect. Great. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to uh, offer some comments after Barry's very insightful discussion. Um, I think the spirit of this was, and I chatted with Barry about that yesterday, was less that I would discuss and address his points more in a discussion back and forth, what do I agree, what do I disagree with, but more to try and stimulate the discussion that will follow afterwards. And so let me, um, let me go and do that uh, in terms of, yeah, stimulating discussion relative to what he said. Oh yes, you can see me now. Thank you for the share screen. Very good. Um, with that regard, I want to organize my comments into two points in terms of the differences or not, and two things that Barry emphasized, which is what will happen to the debt? Barry spent quite a bit of time on the debt. Why did it go up? Will it go down? How will it go down? And two, he emphasized a little less, although more in the beginning of his talk, which is what will happen to inflation? And that was a part both because it affected the debt as well as what we will expect uh, to happen or not. 
starting with the debt. Um, let's start or starting with the public debt. First point. For the last few years, it has become relatively, let's say, common in economic policy discussions to say that the public debt does not matter. You can pay for it. You can raise it much more. R minus G is low. We've had, we've had American Association presidential addresses. We've had I, even, the, even the IMF and many others saying, look, run deficits. It's fine to have large debt. You can have more debt. Let me leave with you the following observation. A week ago, and so with how fast these things go, it's already outdated, I ran a simple regression of, on the left-hand side, how big was the fiscal response adopted by a country, as announced, and again, my data is now 10 days old, on two variables on the right-hand side. How bad the COVID health implications have been in terms of just the number of casualties we've had, and what was the debt-to-GDP of the country last year, at the end of the year. I'm perhaps sad to report to you that countries that have had a worse health crisis are not the ones that have responded more aggressively or have spent more money responding it. Rather, the debt of last year is the overwhelming statistically significant variable that completely kills the other one, which is to say countries that achieved this crisis that started last year with high debt, I, I bear in mind you Greece or Italy or Portugal, since we're from here from the view of London, have had relatively small packages for the intensity of their health crisis, whereas countries like Germany and Denmark have had enormous packet, packages of reform and so on. So that does seem to matter. Now, I'm sure many will still counter-argue, well, it shouldn't matter. This just shows how myopic politicians and policymakers are, perhaps. But certainly, at least in terms of outcomes, it seems that behaving fiscally responsible, even doing that shameful thing, as many put it, of austerity over the last 10 years, seems to pay off when you hit a big crisis in terms of how quickly you can respond or not. Second point on public debt. The rise of debt this year, like, as Barry put it, one can split it into how much is the primary surplus and how much is simply the growth term or the difference between the nominal interest rate and the growth rate. And using the, the WIO that was just released, the World Economic Outlook from the IMF and their forecast for next year, you can actually do a forecasted composition of this. Um, it's a relatively simple exercise to try and look at it. And so I was trying to look at it a little bit this morning as preparing for this decomposition. Um, you get the numbers somewhat like, well, the increase in debt to GDP that we'll observe by the end of this year, beginning of next year, is roughly half um, due to the deficits that we're running and roughly half due to essentially the great collapse in forecasted GDP growth rates, that even the low interest rates are not enough to get there. So even if interest rates go to zero and central bank keep them at zero, we're forecasting falls in GDP at the order of 5 to 8%, depending on different countries, according to the wheel. Now, um, so far, that's fine. And then in some ways matches some of what Barry said. But here's a very an interesting, I find, cross-country dimension, which is that the initial debt to GDP ratio, uh, no, I'm not showing slides for the person last. Um, for the initial debt to GDP ratio, um, that affects not so much the primary surplus, or not necessarily, but affects big time how much the I minus G term is. And here it is striking to see the, how even an asymmetric shock in terms of fiscal expenses, or in terms of even just a source of shock, has highly asymmetric responses or effects on the public debt. In particular, Greece in the calculation has its debt to GDP growing by as much as 50 to 20%, and it's entirely driven by the fact that it starts with a very high stock of debt. 
Portugal having one of the smallest uh, public deficits in response to the crisis still has a debt increasing from the current 117% to something like 135%. So the asymmetry that will come in terms of the public debt across countries is good, is due to the initial debt starting points and does put, is going to put a lot of uh, strain both at the world level or not. And this complements, I think, a little bit of what Barry was saying in that it, as we compare this also previous crisis, the initial stock of the debt is a very important variable. Finally, thirdly, on the fall of the debt after, like Barry put it, primary, if we look at the example after World War II, primary surpluses account for a rough half of how it was paid, approximately, I'm being a little rough here, and the I minus G term, the nominal interest rate minus growth, are another half of it. Now, like Barry put it, part of it was due to the fact that growth was quite high, or um, I would say warmly and well, and positively high during those 20 years from 1940, years from 1945 to the early 1970s. But as he also put it, a big part of how it was not just the, the fact that the growth rate was high, but that the interest rates were so low during this period. That is, it was the, again, the, a, a word that has been used for this is financial repression. It, what is remarkable in some ways between 1945 and 1975 is how interest rates were low and much lower than the growth rate. So much so that, let me link to the audience, other debates that you have seen, for instance, for those of you who have seen recent arms the last few years on how, again, debt doesn't matter much because often interest rates are lower than, than growth rates, well, those 30, 40 years are a huge part of the samples when you see that. When Thomas Piketty wrote a book a few years ago on inequality and noted how well inequality fell and then rose, what variable was low in 1940 to 1970? What variable was higher afterwards? Again, we get back a little bit to these, to these interest rates minus growth differentials. That is, no matter which way you take it, the very low interest rates between 1945 and 1975 are a big part of not just why the debt was paid, but also of why other economic phenomena were observed. Low interest rates therefore seem key. And when we look at how those low interest rates were achieved, like Barry well put it, a lot of it was really indeed very crucial financial repression in the sense of uh, forcing different uh, financial agents to hold government bonds, therefore creating a captive demand through a variety of regulations through caps and ceilings on how interest could be paid to different constituencies in the population. Um, and as a result, if one was to guess or guesstimate, I guess maybe more accurate, following what Barry said, if the very large debt that has been accumulated is going to be paid similar to World War II, what is perhaps a, a not too bad guess, I wouldn't go as far as calling it a good guess, is precisely as he said, well, one could just imagine we're going to grow a lot the next 20 years, we'll be fine. But insofar as no economists come up with a magic wand to predict growth, that doesn't seem like a great policy advice, at least. But what I think the reading of economic history, and I want to highlight what Barry said, because he mentioned the U.S., but this is also true when one looks at other countries. When one sees great falls in public debt, and I have done my own research on this topic, it is remarkable how the, the constant is not to have had high growth. The U.S. had high growth in those 30 years, now worked well. But what seems to me, what strikes me as being the common factor is to have financial repression, i.e. unusually low interest rates through not just central banks, because we're talking here, you have to affect real, not just nominal interest rates, but especially through a series of financial regulations, forcing banks to hold, and other financial institutions to hold large amounts of the public debt than others. 
even if only because, by the way, financial oppression itself not just generates its own revenues, but also gives you the ability to inflate away the nominal liabilities that you force agents to hold. So that's on that, some, some more food for thought relative to what, uh, to what Barry said. Let me turn to my second point or second comment on inflation. Now, inflation, in the short run, let me start from the current events and a little bit of the way I perceive it uh, to then link it to Barry's discussion in history. In the short run, by which I mean short run the next month or two, the CPI is going to be approximately uninformative about what's going on with inflation. Not only is the basket representative, but more importantly, relative prices are going to dominate everything. And thus the signal from the change unit of account, the pure inflation, if you want, that allows us to understand what will happen to inflation over the next year, two or five years, is going to completely swamp by the relative price noise. And so I promised myself not to look at the CPI numbers in the next two months. They may come out scary, but I think they're not very informative in some way. After the lockdown, though, and that is a period that can happen as quickly as a month, three months, six months, um, it is very hard to forecast what exactly will happen to inflation coming out. I mean, we surely see many bottlenecks both on supply and demand. And so, again, we can have some very big relative price changes. But even if we were to filter out the relative price changes affecting headline CPI and try to measure against the measure of pure inflation, we're going to have, I, it's hard to guess, whether monetary policy by keeping interest rates very low is going to uh, feed into, like Barry said, or, or insofar more than very low, by keeping interest rates essentially pegged during this period, which is my, I'm very certain that interest rates are going to be very pegged for the next 12 to 24 months. Exactly like Barry said, we can either have inflation or deflation. We're essentially going to have bad monetary policy in the sense of pegged interest rates, just as we had after World War II. And by bad, I simply mean bad from an inflation perspective. But exactly the monetary policy that we see in history, always whenever we have big debts coming out of wars and other events. And so it's very hard to guess, I think, where inflation is. But let me add two more parts that make it hard to go, to guess this. The first one is, what will be people's expectations? Always an important driver of inflation. And people's expectations will surely change. And what we know is that one, the experience of what they're experiencing now often scars people, meaning they remember it for a while, as well as that a few goods become very representative. And as a result, it is, it is possible that we could have very quickly expectations becoming severely unanchored, even, you know, even uh, with little ability for the central bank to do it. But on that note, and now truly more provocative if you want, imagine a world, or not a world, imagine a United States in which President Trump has been reelected, faces an inflation that has shot up because of bottlenecks, say, on the supply side for a few months, and in particular, there are some cues, and due to relative price changes, we have some cues in some particular essential goods. Boy, and Barry can tell me more since he's an infinitely superior story than I. That reminds me a lot of Nixon in the 1970s and the introduction of price controls, even in the great market economy of the United States. And so let's see what happens to inflation then. And as Barry was putting it, and this I was reminded as Barry was showing the 1940s because as he knows very well, that the one factor we didn't mention that kept inflation controlled during that time when interest rates were pegged was, again, the use of a lot of price controls and others. And so I do wonder what that will be, and I would love to hear Barry's perspective as well as the one from the audience. But finally, to conclude in my last, I think, three minutes, looking instead to the long run of inflation, um, what, will inflation what will happen to inflation then after these 12, 24 months? First, um, insofar as indeed the debt becomes the priority and interest rates are pegged for a long period of time, 
I, we have what I call non-inflation uh, monetary policy, but a monetary policy focused on the debt. Then, like Barry said, we could have inflation going up, going down. Essentially, we may end up with anchored expectations and anchored inflation. And I would just note that this is not so, not so weird. It is normal after wars, and it is normal after big increase in public spending, that the priority of the central bank is indeed to keep uh, pegs on interest rates, to keep financial repression, to keep the government debt rolling over. I mean, some of us, perhaps because of, again, the lack of economic history, think that the last 30 years of independent central banks and inflation targets is the norm. That is not the norm. Whenever we have very large public spending and very large public debt coming out of large shocks, the norm is that the central bank becomes to a very large extent, a debt management office and a management of interest rates. And then inflation may go up, may go down. And I think history has many lessons of that, uh, which I wanted to add, which I think is complementary to what Barry is saying. But two more points on the long run. One thing that history also teaches us very much when it comes to inflation is that when the central bank is forced to generate revenues, by which I mean real resources, we end up with runaway inflation. Now, this happens sometimes as we teach our students of economics, when the central bank is told by the Ministry of Finance, you shall now print currency so as to generate resources to pay the bills of the army or of the state. And that is the classic lesson of how we teach students how hyperinflation start, going back to the classic work of Phil Kagan and many, many others. But more generally, I think the general theorem that comes from economic theory is whether it's whether it's because the treasury told it to, or it's because the central bank has to generate revenues to offset losses that it made, we end up with runaway inflation. And what we see right now in the United States is that the Fed has taken an enormous amount of risk in its balance sheet, as much as in 2008 or nine, or perhaps actually, not I wouldn't say as much, more than it has. And so the big question is, if in the next few years, the Fed loses, makes losses, which is perfectly plausible, especially some of the corporate bond purchase programs will potentially lead to losses. Will we see the fiscal backing from the treasury that, can, that, that permits it to not have to generate resources, the central bank itself, or will we not? And that, the answer from the very recent history, 2010, 2013, was that the Fed got basically lucky in many ways, the risk it took led to very large gains for the most part. This risk didn't come, didn't, didn't materialize. But in the next three, four years, I think that's going to be a very big question. And finally, thirdly, and again, to finish my inflation comments provocatively, much as I finished the debt ones. Um, the third determinant of whether inflation goes out of hand, I first mentioned one, if you're pegging interest rates, two, if you need to generate revenue central bank, but a third one has tended to be a central bank that is not independent. Central bank independence seems to have significantly contributed a little bit all over the world to lower inflation expectations. Let me say something provocative, but it's not, but which I think is not, well, I won't say it's a hundred, I'm a hundred percent going to claim it and die on the stake on it, but I think it's pretty close to being true. The Federal Reserve is not an independent central bank right now. Um, the law that passed Congress a week ago said that when it comes to the corporate bond purchase program that the Fed is following, uh, not only did Congress put uh, constraints on what lending of last resort through this program can the Fed do, but moreover, it gave the Treasury Secretary discretion on telling the Fed exactly which categories of corporate bonds to do or not. This is as close as it gets to not having an independent central bank. The Treasury Secretary can dictate to Jay Powell how the funds of, of 
corporate bond purchases, who should get them, who should not, according to criteria, partly defined by Congress, but allowing much discretion to the Treasury. Now, maybe that's a very temporary thing. Maybe the Treasury Secretary will not exert this power. And maybe in the same way that Dodd-Frank kind of cleaned the house very quickly after the, the Great Recession in terms of relaying the boundaries between Treasury and the Fed, maybe likewise we'll have that in the next six months and independence will be restored. But this time, much more in 2089, the independence through the act of two weeks ago has clearly been taken away in some regard, in many regards. And so I wonder whether, and this to end with linking again back to Barry, I think one forecast that history may help us make is that I think we'll have a new Treasury Fed Accord. Will it take the 10 years with a 10% deflation followed by 7% inflation that Barry described in 1946 or 47, 48 before he got 51? Or will it take six months and we'll never see it at all? But I think that's certainly something that will happen. And note, by the way, I don't want to say this as saying, oh, what a shame we lost the bank independence. Again, in situations of emergency, it may make perfect sense for the central bank stopping independent, and it probably made perfect sense in the last few months. But I think we will need the help, not just of economic historians, as well as the political scientists and others, to understand what's the new political equilibrium. The, tre- the story of the Treasury Fed Accord, as Barry knows, because and some of what I know about it, I, I learned from reading his books and articles, is just a fascinating period in economic history and policymaking of how exactly it was established. And I think some of it will come back and we will have much to learn for it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you for those provocative and insightful comments. So we're going to uh, open it up for, for questions in a minute, but I wanted to give Barry uh, the chance to, to um, maybe make some additional comments to, to, to Ricardo's. Also, there was a question from actually Facebook Live. We have this running on Facebook as well. Uh, so is fiscal consolidation the same as austerity measures? Maybe you could um, elucidate people what, what you mean by fiscal consolidation. Barry. I, by fiscal consolidation, I, I, I mean success, um, uh, successfully reducing the debt-to-GDP ratio. Mm-hmm. And that can be done uh, through a number of mechanisms by running primary budget surpluses. Uh, large primary budget surpluses are informally referred to as austerity. But you can also uh, consolidate your debt in the sense of bringing down your debt-to-GDP ratio by growing the denominator of the debt-to-GDP ratio through the different mechanisms that we described. So uh, they're not exactly the same. Ricardo, thank you for the comments. Um, uh, uh, Viewers will think that this was a carefully choreographed pair of presentations that um, complemented one another per- perfectly. So the complemented one another part is true. The carefully choreographed is, is not. So kudos for anticipating what I was going to say and or making it up on the spot. A um, couple of points uh, in, in, in response. Uh, I do think that the prospects for successful debt consolidation this time will turn on what happens to the interest rate growth rate differential that we've all been uh, discussing. Um, I'm uh, strongly of, uh, of the view at the moment that this uh, uh, searing event is going to change economic behavior, just like the Great Depression changed savings and investment behavior. A lot of households um, realize 
they have not been engaging in enough precautionary savings. And they're going to um, do that once uh, uh, events begin to normalize. And I think firms are going to be cautious about large fixed investment projects until they're convinced that the virus will not be back and um, they know more about the post-COVID economic landscape. Um, so if private spending is going to be subdued, interest rates are going to remain low for the same reason uh, secular stagnationists were arguing in favor of, uh, were explaining uh, low interest rates before the crisis. The question is what happens to growth? So those same factors will work to depress the growth rate, other things equal. And, 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 and the question is whether government can step in where private uh, spending is no longer adequate without blowing out uh, the debt ratio. Um, central banks and in, in inflation. So Eric and I were on a call earlier with two central bankers, a prominent European central banker and a prominent US central banker. And if I'm correct, we did an hour and a half where they didn't mention inflation once. So it's remarkable how the focus of central banks has turned on a dime appropriately under the circumstances, in my view, just as in the 1940s, the priority was the maintenance of financial stability. Today, the priority should be the maintenance uh, of financial stability once uh, again. Finally, on, 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 on price controls, uh, uh, I do think we will see capital controls becoming widespread uh, in coming months. Price controls are, are a different story. I think we will see price controls only where there are uh, serious shortages of basic commodities, where food and fuel is not available because supply chains have broken down or because governments can't get uh, money and, and or, 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 or goods into the hands of, of people unfortunate enough to live in favelas. Um, so I don't see price controls as a likely response in the advanced economies, but I do think we are likely to see them in a number of developing countries and emerging markets. Can I, there's a few questions coming over the, the, the chat room, but I'll use the prerogative of the chair. So, you know, one thing that we very much are concerned about now is of course the ability of the so the global economy or the to to stimulate or the possibilities of individual countries to contribute to a stimulus that in the same way as in the global financial crisis and if you take what uh, ricardo was saying about what he has seen from from uh, the level of debt in some countries how that affects their uh, capacity or at least the willingness to to respond to, to the um, COVID epidemic. If we look at the global debt levels now and maybe looking historically, what are the, the possibilities of getting something similar to what we saw in 2008, 2009 in terms of a global stimulus? And I, I guess it's a lot about China, but it's uh, what, what are the possibilities there? Maybe both of you. Well, I think... Um, Countries 
vary enormously in their fiscal space, both because of the inherited debts that um, Ricardo emphasized and uh, because of the um, uh, presence or absence of a central bank that can uh, backstop that debt market because uh, the debt is issued in, in local currency. So uh, uh, emerging markets often have foreign currency denominated debt. And if it isn't foreign currency denominated debt of, of the government, it's foreign currency denominated debt of the corporate sector, which in this crisis is exactly the same thing. Yeah. So um, uh, it, it all depends on, on who you ask and uh, who, who you're talking about. And I think the fact that no increase, no new SDR allocation came out of the um, uh, G20 and IMF World Bank meetings uh, uh, bodes ill for those um, those prospects. Ricardo, did you have any comment to that or not? Well, I, I would add just two small things. First, that the uh, note that in the short run, and again, this is good economic policy as well as common when one looks at economic history. In the short run, the very large expenses that we needed were essentially financed by the central bank, as should be. There's just no way in which a government can issue the amount of debt as quickly as we need to do fiscal expenses. And so the, the central bank does the right thing and stands behind the fast stability. Now, what matters then, though, is going forward, though, what the central banks have done is that they have not printed currency. What they have done is that the government issues the debt it wants and the central bank buys them while issuing reserves that is creating debts from the banking sector to itself, deposit the bank to the central bank itself. Now, as this, the governments pay off this debt, as Barry was saying, hopefully through maintenance of low interest rates, high growth, the, the governments pay the central bank. The central bank is able to retire the reserves, that is these credits that are created from society onto itself. And then we are perfect. And this does not need to generate inflation or a financial crisis of any type. The, the, but note that, and that is important to note, the central banks, all they did was to support this. All the central banks did was to provide liquidity, if you want. The central banks didn't generate the resources used for the fiscal stimulus now. That is, there's still going to be taxes are going to have to be collected or not to pay this debt. Or if not taxes, then again, benefiting from uh, growth dynamics and uh, interest rate dynamics. So I'd like to note that the central bank, again, is providing, if you want, bridges, but it's not paying for things. And so as a result, um, we will see. And I said that, and if the central bank is made to pay because the government defaults on the debts that it has contracted with the central banks now, then it, that's a sure remedy to have inflation and so on. Second, Eric, I would note when you say, will we see a large stimulus coming soon? Like Barry, I'm somewhat pessimistic because the debt was already very high to start with. But I will also note that it's not obvious that it is for me, well, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, that we're going to need huge amount of fiscal spending in 2021, yes or not. We need a huge amounts now, both for social insurance reasons, as well as to try to offset the loss of revenue and try not to destroy the product capacity. But it's unclear that, the, for instance, next year, again, if one looks at the WIO, this year has an 8% fall in GDP in many countries, and next year, a 6% increase in GDP. Now, the this goes back to this discussion of VWL or U. I don't know which one it is, but the figure I have in my mind is you're going to have a sharp drop this year. You're going to have a sharp increase next year that doesn't for sure hit the full 100% recovery. 
Is it going to be more like a 50%, more like a 30 or more like 70% of what was lost now? That is what I don't know. But for sure, there's going to be a big increase to next year. Will extra fiscal spending in those circumstances, in an economy that is growing fast but recovering from a big hole, does that help or hinder? Does, is it necessary or not? That, I think, is much less obvious, by the way. When we talk about the needs for fiscal spending in recessions, it is not for the kind of economy we're going to see in 2021. And I, I just note the, the number from China came this morning, and, and it seemed like the big problem in China is actually the, the lack of demand, and you know, particularly foreign demand going away. So, but uh, anyhow, uh, Waltrud, are you on still? Waltrud, do you want me to? So Waltrud asked uh, two questions, which was very much related to our previous um, uh, conversation and and uh, in, you know, inflation is not only central bank money but also a mechanism like rising prices and wages to sustain it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it will. Okay, Walter here. Okay, I, I, I thought I just you you can read it out, but uh, I just wanted to say the first is inflation needs not only central banks; it needs also a mechanism by which wage earners and and firms can can rise wages and prices. Right, that we don't see at the moment. Uh, and was a problem before the crisis. Otherwise, this all this uh, central bank money will just lead to more asset price inflation. And I wonder whether that's a solution to anything. It may just be more of the same. And secondly, a question more to Ricardo. Why should a central bank care about its losses uh, at all? I mean, isn't it perhaps a way of, of writing off some of the sovereign debt and let central banks stand with their negative equity? Uh, I, in the absence of a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism, I think this could be perhaps one of the solutions. You want to go? So I'm happy to um, leave the uh, central bank profitability issue to Ricardo. On, on uh, inflation, I do uh, very much agree uh, that you not only need credit creation, but credit utilization in order for uh, inflation to result. Um, because I think there will be precautionary savings, I think that um, uh, that spending will be su- subdued. That's why my expectation going forward is low interest rates with, at best, low in- in inflation rates going alongside. Good. And- and for me, I mean, the central bank losses. So if one has to distinguish your economics from accounting. So accounting negative equity for a central bank is, for all matters, irrelevant in some ways. In some ways, even applying standard corporate accounting to a central bank is itself weird since its liabilities and its assets are not really very well defined in the way they are to a corporation. However, what is very well defined to a central bank as well as to any other economic agent is a resource constraint. And that resource constraint, in real terms, says the central bank produces some resource stream and distributes it as a dividend or not to the fiscal authority, if you want. So in the case of the central bank, the only resource stream that central bank produces comes from printing pieces of paper called currency that people are willing to give it real goods in return. That is what's usually known as seniorage. That is its resource stream. That is the one that it distributes to, to fiscal authorities. If the central bank suffers losses, that is, if it engages in investments in which it borrows from banks, because that's what the central bank is doing now when it's issues reserves, it's borrowing from banks to that invest. And then it wipes out all those investments. 
Well, the banks who are holding these reserves will want to say, well, can you please switch these reserves for currency? I want to withdraw my reserves from the central bank and convert them into currency. The central bank being committed to transform the reserves into currency will have to then print the currency. By print the currency, will generate the resources to indeed pay the banks. But by printing the currency, will also generate inflation. So central bank losses, the problem is that if the central bank, as now, does an increase in reserves and buys assets, and then there's no more assets to cover the reserves, when a bank comes in right now, where the assets match the liabilities, the central bank can say, very well, I will sell you bank, you want to take away some of the reserves out of the central bank, here's a bond back, because I had a government bond in my assets. If there was no bonds there, because they've all defaulted, central bank can say, well, here's a piece of paper, here's, here's currency, because after all, currency reserves have to exchange one to one. And it's that printing of the currency that then generates the inflation. So that's the sense in which losses matter. That's also the sense in which fiscal backup is important. If the, the central bank can run with zero assets and many, many debts to the banks, if whenever a bank shows up and says, I would like to exchange my deposit central bank for currency, the central bank says, well, as opposed to exchange for currency, here's instead a piece of paper from the government, or here's a tax revenue that the government gives you because the government has supported me in that, set, in that fiscal support. And so that's, again, why the accounting of net equity is not useful. But that's why I think the more useful is to what extent the central bank is fiscally backed. And if it has losses and does not have that fiscal backing, then inflation will result from the printing of currency. We have a question from uh, Shirley E. Shirley, are you there? Hi, thank you very much. Uh, question for Barry, please. Uh, during and the post of the Great Depression, FDR implemented a very Keynesian uh, sort of economics to tackle a demand insufficiency. And so it's arguable that uh, it is Keynes that uh, has not only saved uh, the U.S. from the Great Depression, but also democracy itself. And so as we see now, China has recently tabled a new infrastructure development plan in the amount of trillions of RMB over the next few years. And so that is very much uh, going back to FDR's 1930s. And um, with the uh, uh, fiscal expansion of $2.2 trillion that's recently signed by the White House, how much of it is actually used for infrastructure expansion? Why the U.S. does not take this crisis as an opportunity to expand its uh, infrastructure programs? Yeah, I it's okay. I, I'm going to collect a few questions because they're lining up now. Uh, 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 can I have uh, Creon Butler? Uh, thanks. Thanks very much, Eric. I just wanted to pick up on the the um, uh, the question about a post-epidemic stimulus. So, if if a stimulus is needed, um, I mean, what? How should it be designed? Given that um, the continuing factors, I think, Barry highlighted that's depressing demand may well be fear of the of the epidemic coming back or of it still being there and that you know the the priority will be to, to not to kind of repair bank capital but to repair all the damage that's been done in the sme sector and maybe in the services sector so it, it's a if it is a stimulus it's a very unique type of stimulus on if either barry or ricardo could say something about how we should design it and uh, jens lansgaard Thank you. Gentlemen, this is Friday afternoon, uh, and we are having an enthusiastic discussion about economics. But keep in mind, that's workaholics like us. If you go out there in the street and ask people, what do you take from this crisis? They'll be saying something like, oh, it's actually quite nice. You know, we're slowing a bit down, and maybe we should learn that we should aim for some kind of low-growth uh, scenario, low-growth uh, society going forward. That's not quite what people would have said in the late 40s. So, I mean, do you seriously think, uh, Barry in particular, can we really take something from a time where people were 
longing for more material riches and uh, transfer the lessons from then about the growth to interest differential and take it up until today. I might think that we should be cautious, but on the other hand, of course, you know, the many more pension savers today might mean that we can do the trick uh, with lower growth, but also with lower interest rates. What are your thoughts? Um, Jan, so th that th I think there are some people who are also experiencing hardship now, but we, we will come to that. And of course, what's happening in, in the rest of the world now is, is, is a bit different from what you just described. But, but I think it still is a relevant question. What, what, what are the historical, what are the limits of historical parallels here? Barry, you had three questions. So the, uh, the first couple of questions were about uh, infrastructure spending and, and, and post-crisis fiscal stimulus. It's important to recognize that uh, outside of China, we're still in the first month of the, the COVID-19 crisis. And every, every single dollar that has been appropriated by the Congress has gone into income maintenance for people who need it, for loans to uh, small businesses and big businesses and grants that businesses that need to stay afloat. And it's premature to start start acting on the post-crisis problem before we know the, the shape that the post-crisis problem takes. Um, again, I, I am sure there will be reflection based on the experience of the 1930s. What did FDR do? He invested heavily in, in insurance, in social insurance. We got the Social Security Act, uh, note the word, to um, provide old age pensions. We got unemployment uh, insurance. We got a, a variety of related programs. And I think this crisis has laid bare the need for that kind of social insurance in countries where, like the United States, where it's not adequately uh, provided. So uh, you can bet during the recovery phase, there will be more spending on health care. There will be Medicare for all, where everybody can opt into government financed uh, healthcare. Will there also be uh, a big infrastructure initiative? I think that depends on the shape of the, uh, the recovery. If it's V-shaped, the answer is no. If uh, the recovery is uh, an extended process, then yes, there will be opportunity to revisit the uh, lessons of the Tennessee Valley Authority from the 1930s and see which one, ones of those can be transferred to uh, the present. The one place where those two things, uh, insurance and infrastructure come together, of course, is over climate change. And we're having a debate at the moment about whether this crisis will distract us all from the climate change problem or reinforce our concern with the climate change problem. Uh, I would like to think the answer is the latter. Um, finally, uh, Jens Lundsgaard, where, where are you based, Jens? In, in Scandinavia, I conjecture. Um, Correct. I'm from the, the Berkeley Hills, I too see people walking their dogs and rethinking their lifestyles. But I think Eric is right that uh, the, the majority reaction is, I need to get a stable job that pays better and will work harder if need be in order to 
uh, uh, attain that economic security. That will be the reaction of the vast majority of the world's population. Ricardo? Uh, so, yeah, two brief points. The first one is, I'm essentially going to repeat what Barry said during his talk, but I'm going to say it in my words, which is, um, with I think there's an increase in risk and insecurity in the world, um, now driven by health and in a very visible way. That increase in risk and security leads to an increase in precautionary savings individually. I was just in a BBC program yesterday where there was a personal financial advisor saying, see, you should save. Everyone save more and learn that from this experience. And, you know, this is where John Maynard Keynes will strike with a vengeance in his very big lesson, which is the paradox of thrift. I mean, if all of us come out of the saving, we, are, we could end up really in a Great Depression. If we all come out of the saving an extreme amount, even if individually each one of us wants to save, the fact is that the combination of all of us saving could indeed lead to an enormous contraction in aggregate demand, potential deflation, and a very prolonged recovery. I think Barry said this, I'm saying it in slightly different words, but I think that's a very important thing to note. Um, and again, like I said, what I think is in many ways the main lesson, are, I mean, of course, John Americans had many, many lessons, but one of his main lessons with the depression, which is the paradox of thrift, could really hit us with a vengeance. Second point, I have time to draw it. I don't know if this is a V or a URNL, but the economy fell a lot. It's going to bounce back for sure. I mean, once we reopen the economy, I can go back to work. There's going to be some bounce back. And then it's going to recover slowly. Is that going to be very slow, faster? I don't know. And that's a big question. So I think the discussions on Vs and Us, I, just, I think we should talk about how steep this is. That's what's uncertain. This is already in the data, and this for sure is going to happen some. And the hard thing is how steep this is going to be. And on that, and going back on these questions on infrastructure and development, to make this steeper or flatter, um, again, I resisted a little while ago, and I'll double down on that and calling this we need aggregate demand stimulus, but which is not to say we don't need necessarily fiscal stimulus. A lot of the, a lot of the duration of this, as Jens and the others were pointing, has to do with potential reorganization of the economy. It seems to me perfectly plausible, although I wouldn't go as far as venture to guess it, that we have a contraction in some sectors and expansion in some very large sectors. Perhaps uh, hospitality will fall a lot, whereas the healthcare sector rises. Perhaps deliveries will become much more important, so transportation will, will rise a lot, as opposed to, uh, I don't know, sporting events will fall or other things that involve crowds. All of these restructuring organizations of economies are always painful. They always lead to flatter versions of this. And what I just told you is a supply story, if you want just from pure organization. In all of these, to complement, by the way, the demand story, in all of these sometimes targeted, well-thought-out fiscal spending or government intervention can make things much better. It can also make things much worse, but it can make things much better. And therefore, would I call that infrastructure spending? I'm not sure, but at the same time, yes, maybe. Maybe indeed this is the shock that leads to people caring more about climate. We do need to have a climate transition. And as we have a big shift in industries toward cleaner at the demand of customers and society, then we end up indeed needing a new set of infrastructure associated with the climate economy. That seems to me a possibility, one of those that requires government spending and maybe infrastructure. But I think it's more important to think that both on demand because of the powers of thrift and on supply because of reorganization, those are the things that could uh, lead to great changes and where governments have to be very alert, uh, very alert, yeah. Can we, uh, uh, Gene Frieda, can 
Are you there? Hi there. Uh, yeah, so um, Barry, I was just wondering if you could um, elaborate a little bit more on your comments about capital controls, because I think it's one thing uh, you know, that I've thought a lot about, how do you untangle such a complex financial system you know, that seems to be one of the material differences between where we are today and any other historical analog. Um, and it's very difficult for me, at least, to think of financial repression, you know, working in a, in a cleaner fashion. You know, if, if you go down that road, it seems like it would be associated with a very high cost in terms of achieving some net positive end goal. So any thoughts on you know, number one, how that might develop. And number two, are you envisioning this as more of a emerging markets problem or is this more of a generalized reversal in, you know, capital account liberalization? Hi, Gene. Um, I'm, I'm viewing it as a, uh, an emerging markets problem. So um, the United States, when it uh, uh, followed regulatory policies designed to keep interest rates down in the 1950s and 1960s, did not resort to capital controls. Yes, there was the interest equalization tax in uh, the 1960s and this and that, but basically an open capital account uh, because uh, we, we didn't have the kind of, of economic weakness and financial problems that make for capital flight. That's the emerging market situation at the moment. Uh, we're currently poised to pour official money into emerging markets. And I think there will be concern about that official money le leaking right back out in the form of capital flight or to pay off foreign creditors. Um, there will have to be debt restructuring in uh, select emerging markets where select may be an umbrella term for a large number of different countries. Um, and restru restructuring debts uh, without limiting the flight of uh, flight out of other financial assets is going to be hard. So I think um, uh, emerging markets and developing countries are going to have to resort to controls. So I'm going to collect a few questions here because we are running out of time. So there's a question from Facebook, which really kind of relates to this, which it says from um, Santiago Mosquera. It says, in your view, do you think the global economy would tighten in terms of trade and in that case, would, would, how would that affect growth rates? I mean, I guess it ties it somewhat into the issue of capital controls as well. Uh, Vicky Price, you have the question. Yeah, thank you very much. You can hear me okay? Yes. Yeah, you can hear me? Yep. Uh, right, so so uh, for, for Ricardo, really, the, uh, the issue of debt uh, and and how countries which are quite indebted um, have tended not to spend an awful lot of um, extra money now for this crisis. But of course, there is a European dimension, the Eurozone. Obviously, there are countries like Greece and Italy and others who have a bit of a problem there in terms of spending a lot more. Uh, whereas if you look at places like Japan, uh, where I think the fiscal stimulus is something like 10% of GDP, and if you look at the US, of course, as well, and China. So I'm not convinced that the debt-to-GDP ratio itself, if you look outside the Eurozone, of the previous year is necessarily a, a contributory factor to how much is being spent right now. And then, you know, one, one other very small thing uh, in relation to, you know, why we might end up and, and climate change or everything else and whether there will be the right spending in those areas. 
We've already had the European Commission announce just today, at least it was in the papers today, uh, that they're abandoning some of the targets that they had in terms of spending priorities and priorities generally on, uh, on climate change in relation to the New Green Deal. So we seem to be stepping back on that. But it does suggest to me, if you look at the debt situation, what may happen in the future, particularly if we have a W-shaped recovery with the, the whole uh, uh, problem of um, uh, the, the virus maybe re-emerging and few lockdowns and no investment, that it is going to be the public sector that's going to have to sustain uh, the economy. And therefore, uh, you know, um, particularly thing about what Barry's been saying, uh, the debt situation will likely get worse uh, for a considerable number of years before it starts getting better as a ratio to GDP. And, and I wonder why, how an extended worsening uh, uh, might be responded to, apart from, for example, continuing, continuing uh, central bank financing. Thank you. Maybe, Piroska, can you relate to the previous discussion as well? She's no. <clears throat> Piroska had a question about. Um... Yeah, sorry, yes, no, sorry, I, I, I got, had to unmute myself, of course. Um, so the question it relates to um, to what is really new in this new um, setting, and and uh, one one new thing is of course the massive use, uh, very innovative use also of uh, currency swaps. Since both of you are experts on this. So what do you think about the currency swaps uh, of, the, of the Fed, which really has gone beyond what they did in 2009 and alike, and, and now offering this special repo also for, for a string of um, financial, foreign financial monetary authorities, uh, which is, is it's not a swap, but, but, but it's a major step, a repo. Even this ECB, as we heard this afternoon, um, decided to give uh, currency swaps to Croatia and Bulgaria. So they are growing up also as, as kind of the regional central bank. So how you see the, this, this type of, uh, of, 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 of instrument, is, how powerful this is to, to, um, to uh, hedge against um, um, uh, emerging market uh, uh, pressures and cri potential crisis? Okay, I think I had to draw... A line there. So, both of you. Barry, you want to start? Sure. Um, prospects for trade, um, not good. I think there will be uh, political pressures. Uh, nationalism is rearing its head. Um, arguments for national self-sufficiency in the production of PPP are going to be heard. And economically, firms are going to be shortening their uh, supply chains. I think the argument for growing trade remains intact. Only trade that is growing more slowly than uh, than before. Um, the EU uh, uh, putting its uh, climate goals or climate-related spending on hold. I'm a strong believer in climate change mitigation measures, but I also would argue we all need to make sacrifices in this crisis. And I think climate change uh, mitigation has to be uh, a, a problem for 2021, if all goes well, not for not for 2020. Finally, on um, central bank swaps and, and Fed repos, I wouldn't want to neglect the Treasury repo program, which uh, provides uh, 
um, dollar credit to central banks that are holding U.S. dollar reserves on, on a short-term basis. Uh, great for bringing down the cross, uh, cross-currency basis and uh, 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 avoiding interruptions to the provision of trade credit, but this does nothing for countries with solvency problems. And uh, unfortunately, now there are a lot of emerging markets with solvency problems. Can I go back, Eric? Yeah. Okay. So, and myself, I mean, just very briefly on Vicky, I mean, I actually, I think I agree with everything you said in some ways, meaning, so well, let me pick one first on is, I mean, I report to you the results for regression. You said, what if you take out all of Europe? Well, if I take out all of the European countries, I end up, as usual in the regression, if you start taking out observations, at some point you don't have that many. <laughs> and, you know, the crisis, the health crisis hasn't really spread in a significant way to all the many countries. But it may be the case. It may be the case that I should, it may be the case that once we collect more data, Vicky, you're completely right. And the qualified right statement is countries that had a lot of debt to start with and did not have a national central bank are the ones who then didn't have the funds to respond. If that's the case, I think that that could, that confer, that's that's completely consistent with everything that I said and the prior said, and that would be fine. On the, whether if it's W and as a result we need more of um, uh, more central bank intervention, I think again that's perfectly consi- that's entirely consistent, or I agree with the things that Barry and myself said, which is again this is whether it's because the debt is very high now, and again we're going to end up having to have some financial repression. A central bank with a very bloated balance sheet that comes down only slowly, uh, keeping interest rates low and transitions out of it? Or is it because not just the impact now, but on top of it, there's a further increase in the debt next year and two years from now? I think ultimately the problems and issues that arise are exactly the same, i.e. ultimately you're gonna have, we're going to have to pay for this debt through either taxes, primary surpluses, or through interest rate growth combinations. And two, the central bank can perfectly well have a large balance sheet as long as it doesn't make losses in the sense that I precisely defined 20 minutes ago, as long as it keeps fiscal backing in that sense. Uh, and as a result, it doesn't have to print currency as opposed to having a large balance sheet in order to uh, get out of those. And then finally, thirdly, on the question on, um, on, the, on the central bank swap lines that Piotrka raised, let me send you, I think I'm going to repeat Barry a little bit here, but just, I mean, the center by swap lines are extremely useful to prevent fire sales. That's what they're there for. They're a lender of last resort policy that's extremely effective. I recently published a paper just a few days ago showing how this time they were extremely effective yet again. Um, the impact on the cross-currency base and the CFP deviations is really quite extreme, and you see it right away. And the expansion to other jurisdictions showed it as well. And so they're good to prevent fire sales. Uh, but be, but that's what they do. I mean, they prevent fire sales and and prevent huge market disruptions. They don't change ultimate solvency. I mean, they're like a central bank lender of last resort to banks. That's what they do. They do not solve any solvency themselves. And I think the problems of emerging markets right now are not purely liquidity. I mean, it's really quite of a storm of a strong dollar, a contraction in global demand, um, the health emergency. And so I see a lot of concerns here that have to do with solvency. On the Treasury repo that Barry uh, mentioned, I mean, the Treasury repo, uh, sorry, the, the central, the Fed's repo operation with Treasuries, um, as of now, it's had very little take up. And I don't think it's had a very large effect. And the reason is, I think what the Fed, what the Fed has done extremely aggressively, Perosco, and since you mentioned ECB, is as always, the Fed is extremely aggressive at defending the dominance of the dollar. And the central bank swap lines are extremely important for that and sustaining low interest rates in the Treasury market. 
And so two weeks ago, and the sustaining tra- uh, the low interest rates is again conditional with the things that Barry was teaching us this afternoon about how important is the role of the central bank stepping in this crisis. And what we had two weeks ago is that people were selling treasuries to realize liquidity, and they were selling treasuries left and right. And so what did the Fed do? The Fed has been buying treasuries at a daily rate that far exceeds what it ever did, including 2012 and 19, to keep the price of those treasuries up and the long-term interest rates down. And then as it did that, there was a fear of, well, maybe it's instead the foreigners that are selling their treasury reserves, their 10-year bonds, and that's what's pushing the price down. Guess what? Let's tell them, don't sell it. I'll lend you dollars against them just to make sure you don't sell 10-year bonds and we keep the price of those treasuries high and we keep the long interest rates down. So that program is less, I think, about cross-currency basis, but it's essentially just entirely treasury support. Why has it had not much of an effect, in my view, is that I think ultimately it's not that Brazil, China, or well, not so much Brazil, China, and all the other countries with very large treasury reserves were selling them desperately because they needed cash to to meet liquidity changes. No, and actually quite on the contrary, they're pretty happy to say a treasury is just as liquid as a dollar in my pocket, so I'm happy to hold my treasuries. I don't need dollars in exchange for the treasuries. I continue to be confident I will sell them. And that is where I conclude on that is that it was, again, a successful intervention of the U.S. to keep the treasury market the true safe asset, the dollar the true safe currency, because lo and behold, it was another policy that tells the Chinese, the, the, all the countries around the world, you don't need to sell your 10-year treasuries. We're going to keep their prices high in any case like this. Uh, we'll even lend people money to them not to, through the central bank not to sell their 10-year treasuries. And lo and behold, it succeeded yet again, uh, even without having to have been triggered. You're muted, Eric. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, so, so um, thank you very much. We have reached the time of closure of this. So, thank you to you, and thank you to everybody who has been listening in, both here on and on Facebook. You know, Barry started with some reflections on, you know, what it means to be an economic historian and or a historian, in and how how you think uh, in terms of um, uh, looking at crisis situations and learning from them. And I think you have illustrated that beautifully today. And what I said initially about you as a historian willing to engage in very contemporary issues and policy debates also came out very strongly in this. And actually, we also saw that Ricardo is a little bit of a closet historian, which is good to know. And, uh, and, but I think there is there are many reasons going forward to think back to history because we are going to go through different phases of this crisis. And then Barry was sort of saying in passing that you know, death rates in from COVID-19 will go up as we go in. It moves into developing and emerging economies in a more serious way. And of course, you know, for example, that the Spanish flu was many times more deadly in in, in uh, in India, for example, than it was in the U.S. So, you know, this um, we have a lot of reasons to try to think about what the lessons are from from history. So, th- thank you very much.